Ten. Hit! I eat. All right. You know what time it is. <laughs> it's Mr. Button time, America. It's that time I tell you to hit that button. I tell you to hit that like button. I tell you to hit that prescribe button. That he lied button. That he's my guy button. Or whatever other button you see, hit it. Just hit it just as hard as Jason hit a 40 ounce of Pepto-Bismol after Thanksgiving. I'm not sure where it's at, it's somewhere out there, but somewhere out there in the cyber world, wherever in the hell it may be at, I need you to find it, and I need you to give Jason five stars, okay? Now I know some of you are still weary of giving Jason five stars, but let me tell you something. You know, we're all aware that during this holiday time across America, that the shelves at our grocery stores are bare. And you know what, Jason doesn't want me to tell you guys this, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Jason's going to allow the United States government to tap into his own personal reserve of meat. He's gonna tap into his reserve of beef, pork, poultry, as well as seafood, okay? So I'm gonna tell each and every one of you, this year, if you have a Christmas turkey sitting on the table, you need to thank Jason Whitlock for this. And for that reason alone, you need to give him five stars, okay? All right, having said that, moving on. In other news, the, 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 the Jezebel of the media world, and of course I can be talking about none other than LeBron James, he's back in the news. And everyone's making a big deal about the fact, talking about it because he's got COVID. Or in other, in other words, in the words of Jim Rome, allegedly. Hey man, LeBron James is that old angry black dude that's been on the job for about 40 years now. And he's finally decided he's gonna retire in mm, a couple of years. Hey man, LeBron's been a soldier for the Lakers. He's built up a considerable amount of sick time. And LeBron James is just like a whole lot of y'all that your jobs done told y'all at this time of the year. You gotta use it or lose it, okay? And that's all LeBron's doing. He's using up that sick time, okay? Hey man, LeBron James is becoming that dude that will do anything that will get a little bit of time off from work, all right? He's getting older. He wants to spend some time with his family. That's why as soon as he got back from vacation, what did he do? He went and punched that dude straight in the eye. Bam! Right after getting back. Only reason he did that is so that he could be at Bron Bron's next game the next night. You know, hey man, you know what it's like to get back off of a vacation and want an extra day off? Hey, some of y'all just did it this past week. Y'all understand. Anyway, listen here, man. Got a great show planned for you. It's Wednesday. You know what we call it. The Wednesday Hump Day Harmony, all right? And you know what that means. <clears throat> that means we got to be on our best behavior. Why? Because the pastors is coming. That's right. Pastor Bobby, Pastor Anthony are back in the house, and they're gonna sprinkle us with some of their gospel goodness. We also have my guy, Leonidas Johnson. He's gonna be returning to the show to discuss Jason's latest column, talking about the latest news in the Twitter shakeup. And then we also have coming into the fearless, uh, the fearless pit for the first time, we've got guest Drew Holden. And he's gonna go more into depth regarding the social media Twitter shakeup. But wait, there's more. 
We also have author J.D. Vance, and he's going to be here to talk with us about his book, Hillbilly Elegy. And it's also going to be talking about what's going on with him politically. So, you know, it's that time to release the doves, <laughs> to release the hounds. And as you did yesterday, so do it again. Type dilly dilly if you feel me to a man that if he were worth his weight in gold, he'd be Fort Knox. Give it up for my guy, Jason Whitlock. <sighs> Jimmy, uh, you were out on COVID and whatever surgery you had. We had Drew holding on before, uh, but I think you were out that day. This is not his first visit. All right, fantastic show lined up as Jimmy told you. Let me get uh, the fire started right away. Uh, thanks for joining me. I hope you guys are here on youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Let's get these likes up. Let's get these subscriptions up. Let's make sure that you fearless army soldiers are telling your friends they don't want to miss what I'm about to do right now. Uh, Twitter's new CEO, Parag Agrawal, won't make Jack Dorsey's invention worse. Agrawal will make Twitter more transparent. On Monday, Dorsey announced he's stepping down as CEO of the social media app he co-founded just 15 years ago. Attention quickly turned to the man Dorsey identified as his successor, Agrawal, the company's chief technology officer the last four years. Conservative doom and gloomers moaned that Agrawal would make the left-leaning, racially divisive app even more hostile to political conservatives and white men. They pointed to a 2010 tweet from Agarol that suggested Agarol was quite comfortable labeling all white people as bigots. The then 26-year-old Stanford student tweeted, quote, if they're not gonna make a distinction between Muslims and extremists, then why should I distinguish between white people and racists? Yeah, like all good Twitter employees and Stanford-educated technocrats, Agarol is certainly woke. And unlike Dorsey, Agarol is non-white, which combined with his old tweet, justifiably spooks conservative white men. Agarol is Indian. He was born in Ajmer, India, and raised in Mumbai. Dorsey grew up in St. Louis, attended a Catholic high school, and formulated the idea for Twitter while studying at New York University. Some people foolishly believe Dorsey's American heritage makes him slightly more reasonable about, approachable regarding, and respectful of a traditional American worldview. I'm not one of those people. Dorsey is a traitor. He doesn't believe in American exceptionalism. He's a global citizen with a globalist agenda. In his mind, there's nothing sacrosanct about his country, our constitution, bill of rights, or freedoms. Dorsey shares Agarol's worldview. 
The differences between America and India, America and China, America and Africa, America and any place on earth isn't in our founding documents or Western civilizations reliance on Judeo-Christian culture. It's in our willingness to cut corners, oppress and exploit. Dorsey is every bit as woke as Agarol. Don't let the packaging and Joe Rogan interviews fool you. Dorsey was Twitter's beard, the hood the app wore to conceal its America dismantling agenda. The destruction of American culture is an inside job. Let me put on my little Alex Jones tinfoil hat. It's an inside job! Don't blame Agarol for what Twitter has done and will do. He's following a plan Dorsey and Twitter's co-founders agreed to the moment they headquartered in San Francisco. Agarol's ascension to Twitter's throne should be greeted with glee and applause. Twitter has removed its hood. As Dorsey stated in a Rogan interview several years ago, Twitter is a tool to amplify voices Dorsey and the company's leadership team believe deserve amplification. Twitter's primary function is to boost the complaints of the BLM, LGBTQ, CRT, Alphabet Mafia. Twitter amplifies San Francisco's worldview. The Bay Area is radical, revolutionary, and secular. Its culture isn't Judeo-Christian, it's Marxist. The Bay Area launched the Black Panther Party and the gay movement. Twitter is San Francisco's megaphone. It drowns out all other points of views. A year ago, while serving as Twitter's CTO, Agarwal was asked about protecting free speech and the First Amendment as core values. Free speech is sacrosanct in American culture. It's what makes America different and special. Here's how Agarwal responded in full. I've gonna highlight a few of his most important comments. Our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, but our role is to serve a healthy public conversation and our moves are reflective of things that we believe lead to a healthier public conversation. The kinds of things that we do about this is focus less on thinking about free speech but thinking about how the times have changed. One of the changes today that we see is speech is easy on the internet. Most people can speak. Where our role is particularly emphasized is who can be heard. The scarce commodity today is attention. There's a lot of content out there, a lot of tweets out there. Not all of it gets attention. Some subset of it gets attention. And so increasingly, our role is moving towards how we recommend content. And that sort of is a struggle that we're working through in terms of how we make sure these recommendation systems that we're building, how we direct people's attention is leading to a healthy public conversation that is most participatory. Let me walk you through the highlights <laughs> of this. Twitter isn't bound by the First Amendment. Let me translate that statement. Twitter, a company started by four American boys, 
Jack Dorsey, Evan Williams, Noah Gross, and Biz Stone doesn't care about the U.S. Constitution. It's no more important than the Constitution of Cuba. Here's another highlight. Our moves are reflective of things that we believe lead to a healthier public conversation. Let me translate that. We are the smartest people on earth. We're much smarter than the American people, and a small group of us can sit in our San Francisco office and determine what a healthy conversation is. How about this one? But thinking about how the times have changed, translation, America's founding documents are outdated. Times have changed. Everything must be rewritten to fit our worldview. Where our role is particularly emphasized is who, is who can be heard. This is probably my most important translation here. We're going to determine who can be heard and who can't. People who foolishly believe men can have babies need to be heard, and we're gonna mainstream that point of view. People who believe the police are randomly executing black men in a genocidal plot need to be heard, and we're going to amplify their voices. Here's another one. So increasingly, our role is moving towards how we recommend content, translation. We have no journalistic training or interest, but we know what the public needs to know, and we're going to jam that content in front of the public. Anytime a no-name rapper is shot or killed, we will make sure the world learns about it on Twitter. All right, how about this one? How we direct people's attention is leading to a healthy public conversation. Translation, in our view, healthy, pub, healthy conversations lead to racial animus and division. The more racial division and violence we spark, the more we realize we're doing the right thing. Yeah, Agarwal's ascension to lead Twitter is a blessing. It will snap people out of the false hope that Jack Dorsey would one day change or adjust the purpose of the app out of nostalgia for old American values. For at least a decade, Twitter has helped foment a conversation intended to undermine the core values of American culture. Twitter is the newspaper of the new world order. That's my fire. Uh, let's roll out to Ohio and bring in our man Leonidas Johnson, host of Informed Descent. Uh, Leonidas, uh, I know you've had some tussles over Twitter, and I know that you're able to see the facade of Twitter. I, 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 what do you think of my take that this Parag guy, Agarol, uh leading Twitter is actually a blessing because I think Jack Dorsey smokescreen and made it difficult for some people to accept exactly what Twitter is. Yeah, I think Jack, Jack was shy about his wokeness quite, quite a bit. And I think you're right that, they, that they're both as woke as each other. Um, I'm not sure that this Agarol guy is going to be 
uh, worse than Jack, but I think that he's going to be worse in the in the sense that he's going to be blatant about it. Like he's going to be very pointed about what he's doing, and we've already seen that with the new the new policies that are being put out with Twitter. But I mean, Twitter's been doing this stuff forever. I mean, it's not new. It's this this uh, the uh, the attacks against conservatives and then the the pushback against certain ideology. It's not new. This is Twitter's been doing this for a long time. It's been, and it doesn't matter what the policy is, Jason. It's like it doesn't matter what they're going to be talking about, like whether it's disinformation or we're talking about, uh, yeah, what's the new policy? Like if they posting pictures or videos about, of, of people against their consent, it, it doesn't matter what the, what the policy is. It, it's going to be selectively applied based on progressive ideology. And here's the, here's the thing about progressivism is that progressivism thinks it's always correct. And AOC said this, right? It's as long as it's morally correct, it doesn't matter if it's factually correct. So progressives, left-wing accounts, they're not going to be affected by any of this stuff. They haven't been, and it's, it's going to continue to be that way. And they're going to use this as a, as a means to filter out content that they don't like that goes against the progressive again, uh, progressive agenda, progressive ideology. And that's just the way that it's going to be. Now, whether it's going to be worse, again, I don't know, but it's already bad enough. <laughs> Like it's it's already it's already terrible the way that it is. Um, so it's, it remains to be seen. I don't know. We'll see. I just think it's just going to be more transparent. I, I think they've been doing all these things from the get go. And now it's just like the, the thing that you're talking about in terms of you can't use images or videos uh, of private citizens without their consent. That is directly targeted at Andy No of the post-millennial who has been slaughtering and exposing uh, Antifa and all these radical elements that have been doing all these protests. He publishes all kinds of information that the mainstream media, corporate media will not touch. And they're trying, he's had a great impact. He wrote a book that was a bestseller about Antifa and all the, the radical protests that was going on. His Twitter feed is very powerful and they're trying to weaken and destroy his ability to put the facts out on the others on 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 the other the side that the mainstream media won't cover they won't expose how despicable and violent these people are that are allegedly antifa or, or anti-fascist or, or or whatever they are cuz when i think about andy no and 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 why the other side needs to be exposed is i think a lot of people are sitting around shocked like Man, Cal Rittenhouse uh, crossed state lines and went over to Wisconsin and, and ran into a pedophile, a domestic abuser, and, and a third criminal. I can't remember uh, Gage Grosskreutz uh, crimes or whatever. Robbery. But it's like, to me, yeah, if you had been following Andy and all the information he's been putting out, you know that's who these people are, that, right. that they're people that just released from jail. They have emotional, psychological, mental issues, uh, the purple hair and all the other stuff. These are the, the dregs of society that are that are out, I think, being paid to cause chaos and anarchy around the country. Yeah. They can't get a real job. And so George Soros and others are funding them to go out and create chaos. And, and it's like, 
if you want those bail funds that Kamala Harris and LeBron James were backing, they were so people like Joseph Rosenbaum could get out of jail and these other paid protesters could get out of jail and travel the country creating chaos and anarchy everywhere. And so when I look at that new rule, I, I, that's a direct shot at Andy Noe and his Twitter feed. They don't want that information out there. And it definitely seems that's how it's going to be used. It definitely seems that way. And but you mean bring up a good point. All that different disinformation around Kyle Rittenhouse. We had these huge disinformation campaigns, all these fact checkers. You know, we have to crack down on disinformation. It's spreading. We can't let it spread. All this stuff around Kyle Rittenhouse, none of it was true. Did any of those counts get suspended? Did any of those cows get banned? No, like all that stuff was still out there. You can even still find a lot of people who believe it. We're still pushing that nonsense. And so this is the case. This is how this is how it happens every single time that it's only one sided and it's only always based on political agenda. Now, as far as journalism goes and as far as the First Amendment goes, this is the way progressivism operates as well. Because and it's not just big tech. Progressivism hates the First Amendment and it hates free speech. It hates uh, independent journalism who's going to come out and push against progressive ideology. Basically, anything that pushes against the progressive agenda, they are they are not going to like it because they think that they should have full power and control over people's lives in order to craft their utopian vision. And anything that goes against that, all the principles of liberalism, individual rights, individual liberty, free enterprise, capitalism, anything that pushes back against that, they're going to have a problem with it and they're going to say it needs to be suppressed. So if you come out and you support these sort of things, then you're, you need to be suppressed, but they can come out and they can say whatever they want. And, and their account needs to be amplified. Um, if they're, if especially if they're minorities, Jason, if they're, if, if they're a minority account, they need, they need to have their voices amplified. But if it's me or you, we need to be suppressed because we're saying the wrong things. Well, yeah, because, you know, we would both be considered minorities, but we don't think the right thing. So therefore, we're not we're white adjacent. I guess we're like Asians that got high SAT scores. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we get right. moved into a completely different category. But I, I, people criticize me, and I'm sure you've heard the criticism. Anybody that criticizes Twitter, you get hit with the, well, why don't you just leave? If it's so bad, why don't you do something else? I, I, I know why I stay. Uh, I'm very comfortable with the reason I say because to survive as a media person you have to be there my message to everybody is just like don't leave just accept Twitter for what it is lower your expectations and use Twitter for what it's good for pushing out content and then just accept that there's going to be these paid accounts bot accounts algorithms set up to attack you. Uh, I don't think running away, those of us that understand how toxic and corrosive Twitter is, I don't think leaving is the right solution. What's your take? I don't think leaving is the right solution either. I would agree with that. I don't know that accepting it is the right solution. I, I think that we should continue to push back on it and continue to expose it for what it is, um, rather than just accepting that there's going to be that bias and that animosity towards conservatives. I don't know that we should just step back and say that this is just the way it's going to be. I think we should push back against that and and 
uh, you know, assert our own principles and let that be known. So I think we should, I think we should stay on the platform. So I think you're right there. I don't think that we should leave, but I think we should continue to fight and continue to push back for sure. Now, uh, the, the whole idea, the whole reason that I'm a libertarian, or at least I call myself a libertarian. I don't I don't affiliate with the Libertarian Party, but my my political ideology is more libertarian. As I know that I'm not smart enough to know what's best for all 330 million people in the country. So I'm not I don't think that we should go and we should tell other people how to live their lives, but we should still promote those ideals. We should still promote the ideals of liberty and uh, individual rights and, and free enterprise. And we should we should push those conservative ideas and those libertarian ideas out into the world. And we should um, and we should make it a point to be to model those things um, rather than just cut and run. So I, I think I think you are right in the sense that we shouldn't just leave and try to make a conservative platform somewhere else. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think we should stay and fight. Leonidas, appreciate your time. Great job. Uh, I will be circling back to you. Thank you so much. Let me tell you about our friends over at Good Ranchers. You guys need to be checking out this holiday season. They exist to support local American farms and help you make great American meals. Together, they want to restore the American ranch and your meals to their former glory. Good Ranchers has the best grass-fed and grain-finished beef, chicken, and seafood. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless right now and get 10 free bistro fillets when you subscribe. In addition, you'll save $25 off each subscription box of mouthwatering American meats for life. That's L-I-F-E, life. That's right. Get 10 free bistro fillets. That's $119 in value, free express shipping, and $20 off your monthly subscription for life. GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. Get the best deal of the year by visiting GoodRanchers.com slash fearless or using the promo code fearless at checkout. You guys know Good Ranchers is good to me. That means they're good to you. They're good to this show. They're good for America. This good soldiers support good ranchers. You want to support me. You want to support this show. Support good ranchers. All right, Drew Holden. Thanks. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to bring in uh, one of my favorite Twitter follows, uh, Drew Holden. Uh, he's a freelance commentator. He's been published in the New York Times or Washington Post. Don't hold that against him. Uh, he's, he's an independent thinker. And he's someone that I think has a great handle take on social media and Twitter in particular, as you just heard me and Leonidas talking about. Uh, so I wanted to get uh, Drew Holden in here to see, uh, to get his thoughts on Jack Dorsey stepping down and Parag. Agarol taking over and what impact that will have on Twitter in Drew's opinion. Drew, uh, welcome back to the show. And uh, I contend we should be happy that uh, Jack Dorsey has stepped down uh, because I think Jack Dorsey has been a beard for Twitter. and, Mm -hmm. And now we're about to have to deal with exactly what Twitter is. Uh, Twitter is hostile towards American values. Twitter is a megaphone for the globalist agenda. And, and so 
I, I think having a guy that was born and raised in India as the head of, of, of Twitter was going to snap us all into the reality and we can quit thinking that Jack Dorsey's going to snap out of it and remember that he grew up right. in St. Louis. That was never going to happen. Anyway, uh, your take. Yeah, Jason, you know, unfortunately, I think you're right. At, at first, when I heard that Dorsey was was stepping down, there was a problem that's like, oh, no, you know, he has been a little bit better than some of the other leaders of social media companies on this stuff. And I saw a lot of sentiment, I think, like that on Twitter. But I think you're right. At the end of the day, you know, whether or not Jack Dorsey may have a little bit of a libertarian streak to him, conservatives need to look at Twitter and other social media platforms as a, a truly existential threat. As someone who, whether or not they might smile and nod and maybe answer your questions a little bit better on Capitol Hill, uh, their end goal is to see you do poorly, to see you fail, right? And so I think the more that we're able to kind of unmask what Twitter really is and what Twitter's really going for when it comes to conservatives and conservative viewpoints, I think the quicker we'll really start to get to the next level of this, this kind of, you know, we've had a bit of a cold war, I think, and I think it would probably do better for conservatives rather than to be asleep in, at the wheel on this stuff to really face down the threat that confronts us. I think that Jack Dorsey, and his successor, and I hope I'm saying his name right, Parag, uh, I, I think they align on what they think about America, that it's an oppressive country, uh, there's nothing special really about America. I think Jack Dorsey, dis, uh, despite being white, I think he sees the white man in Western civilization and Western civilization culture, I, I think he sees all that as something that needs to be corrected and adjusted and more inclusive. Uh, I, 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 I just, I think it's his, the Parak's old tweets where he basically says, you know, he's got no problem seeing all white people as racist. Uh, I think Jack Dorsey sees things the exact same way. I think you're probably right. You know, um, I, I think there's been there's been a lot made about how Dorsey decided to ban Donald Trump from from his use of Twitter. But I think it, what that the focus on that, while it's important, it overlooks the types of people who he is entirely comfortable spewing hatred on his platform. Right. The the leaders of Iran can come through Twitter. No problem. The Chinese Communist Party has a huge footprint on Twitter. They're using it as a megaphone, not only to promote their own initiatives, but to spread vile propaganda about the United States and other countries. We saw this around the origins of COVID. We've seen it up to the modern day. I mean, just the other day, a spokesperson for the Chinese Communist Party was attacking, I think it was Bolivia or another, or it might have been an Eastern European country for uh, the mistreatment of, of racial and religious minorities there, right? And at no point is that mirror ever going to be held up to people in China and in other countries who are hostile, not just to the United States, but to our values. And Dorsey obviously had no interest in trying to address that. And I think you're right. I don't think anyone at Twitter has any interest or, quite frankly, any incentive to actually address that. And what, what do you think will be unveiled here sort of new in Twitter. I've seen some people predict that with Dorsey out of the way and the Parag guy in charge, that perhaps one of the things they'll do to kind of smoke screen and uh, maybe allay some of the fears that conservatives will have is that they'll bring Donald Trump back to Twitter. 
Do you see that happening? You know, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I think that it's, you know, anytime an organization like Twitter goes through a structural kind of change as big as this one, I think one of the things that's in the back of their heads is how can we play nice with the people who maybe have grievances against us, rightly or wrongly, and how can we use this as an opportunity to earn some goodwill? So, yeah, I don't think I would be surprised if they did that either with Donald Trump or with the legions of other people that they've kicked off of their their platform for disinformation, much of which has, has come to be proven correct or at least plausible. So I, I could see that happening, but I do think it will be the sort of thing that it's done in the short term. Uh, it's done to try and get some goodwill, particularly around conservative stakeholders on Capitol Hill, and then it won't actually represent any kind of change among Twitter in terms of how they view conservatives. I get a lot of heat because I've been critical of Twitter for almost since I got on it, I believe in 2009, and I was yeah. critical almost from the very beginning. I get a lot of, well, why are you here? Uh, well, if yeah. it's so bad, why don't you leave? And, and part of my mentality and strategy that I've been trying to get other people of traditional Christian faith or traditional values is like, no, just accept what Twitter is and, and understand that it is hostile towards Chris, a Christian point of view, it's hostile towards male heterosexuals, uh, accept it for what it is and deal with it that way. To me, it's no different than fast food. Every time I eat it, I know it's no good for me, but there is some enjoyment I derive from it. Sometimes yeah. it is fuel that I need to get me through the day, but yeah. just accept the overall fact, not really good for you. That's the best way to deal with Twitter. I, I don't know if we have, and we're looking at what big tech did to parlor. I don't know mm -hmm. if we're ever going to have a better option than twi Twitter. And so right. all you just adjust your expectations and mindset and then use Twitter. And then it can be a somewhat effective tool for you. That's that's right. I, I think at the end of the day, you're you hit the nail on the head. Twitter's not going away. And I think that every so often you see these attempts to from conservatives and conservative organizations to try and kind of create your own Twitter. But the reality is the discourse happens on Twitter. Right. News gets broken on Twitter. The interaction between the news and politics, all of that is always going to happen on Twitter until elected officials and journalists and thought leaders and everyone else decide that they're not interested in it anymore. And so I think it is really important to look at look at it as a tool and say, this isn't going to be the greatest thing for my mental health, probably. This isn't going to be a lot of fun all the time. But if conservatives want to win on any talking point, they have to go to Twitter to do it. They have to be able to reach people. And that's everyday people, the millions and millions of Twitter users. But also, I think it's in terms of being able to shift some of those conversations that are increasingly taking taking place online uh, and, and make sure that we're, we're, we're doing our best to kind of own those lanes. Uh, and just throwing up our hands and going off of it, I think, is, is, is definitely wrong. My best case scenario here and again, it's why I'm happy Jack Dorsey has stepped aside, is that in a couple years, maybe after the midterm election, when the political, there's more political balance in Congress, is that perhaps we'll be calling Parak to uh, congressional hearings and seeing someone from India arguing with 
our politicians and some of our politicians holding his feet to the fire, it will be easier for Americans to see like, well, Twitter is not really an American company. Because I, I think with Jack Dorsey as the face of it, we think of it as an American company. I don't. I, I, I yeah. don't think of it as an American company. I think of it as a global company that's far more interested in 1.4 billion people in China. And I, I know China has a lot of restrictions and restraints on Twitter, but they'd like to see that change. I, I, I'm just hoping that Parat, a different face on Twitter is gonna just help people understand exactly what Twitter is and what its real agenda is. And it certainly is an America first. Yeah, I, I think that's right. You know. I I think one of the things that a lot of Americans struggle with with a lot of these kind of founder-led tech companies is that they still have a little bit of the shine to them, right? Even Zuckerberg, someone who doesn't exactly have the, the highest favorability ratings among lots of Americans, they look at them and say, oh, look, here are these tech guys. They built this cool platform. It's interesting. It's part of daily life. And the more that we can get away from some of those CEOs, I think people are going to start to realize this is just a company like any other. They have interests. Maybe those align with American interests, or in a lot of cases, maybe they don't. And it's on our legislative to be able to hold them accountable to give us good answers on those things so that we can figure out what to do about it. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate you making the time. Pleasure's mine, Jason. Thanks All for right. having me on, sir. You guys are on youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit me with those likes. Hit me with the subscriptions. If you're listening over Apple, give me that five-star review. All right, we're going to have the author and one of my favorite new people on the political scene, J.D. Vance of Hillbilly Elegy. Hey, welcome back to Fearless. I'm Uncle Jimmy. And this time we've got something brand new for you. Our newest Fearless contributor, I think we're going to call him the chaplain of the Fearless Army. Uh, Chaplain Anthony, or excuse me, uh, Pastor Anthony. Uh, Pastor Anthony, uh, as we know him to be a wordsmith of the word, well, apparently no one knew that he was bilingual and he also knew something about sports. Uh, evidently, uh, his knowledge of sports has seemed to intrigue Jason. And uh, so now we're going to have a new special, a new segment. It's called Bible Stories with Pastor Anthony. Check it out. I'm Anthony Walker, and here's my take on Scottie Pippen. When we first see Saul and David together, David is a young boy, a teenager, and Saul king. Saul was intimidated by Goliath and afraid to battle. But David is confident, having slain a bear and a lion barehanded. Saul offered his armor, but David declined and went on to defeat Goliath. I believe this bothered Saul greatly, but the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was when returning from battle, the sisters were singing a new song, and the chorus was, Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David never disrespected Saul, but his glory began to outshine Saul, and his relationship with God was more intense and intimate than Saul and God's relationship. Having observed the whole thing and almost obsessed over the bull run, I just can't get with Scotty's revelations. 
I believe Scotty is more upset with the media's obsession with Jordan than any personal issue he supposedly has with Jordan. To my knowledge, Jordan calling Scotty selfish in the Last Dance documentary, which he has said before in another documentary, was the only time Jordan has publicly criticized Scotty. It's always been praise. They were a part of Jordan's infamous breakfast club in which they worked out early, daily together, breakfast together, manicures along with Ron Harper. Scotty even wore the hoop earrings similar to Jordan. Scotty had special earrings made for Jordan after the 97 championship. And at least on one occasion when Jordan won finals MVP, he gave Scotty the car that came along with the trophy. But all along, the sisters were singing, be like Mike, like Mike, like to be like Mike. You've got to have the right ego to run with an alpha. Guys like Jordan are driven, tough, but they also struggle with ego. They're immensely talented, but also flawed. Brady, flawed. LeBron, flawed. Jordan, Isaiah, Magic, Kobe, Phil. I know of no great that didn't or doesn't struggle with ego. I believe, as the rumor mill suggests, that Jordan was bothered by the clout and the goat talk LeBron is getting and released the documentary, Ego Struggle. But following the narrative, I also know that Jordan, at least publicly, was unique in his overt praise for Scotty. He has never publicly declared that he won the championships without Scotty or that he could. He said that Scotty was his best teammate he's ever had. And Scotty took that as condescending. The Last Dance was about Michael Jordan. And I can respect the criticism that it should have been more about the team and the last dance of the team's success together. I get it. But all those players to a man also know that it wouldn't have gotten nearly the aura without Michael Jordan. Judd Bushler, Dickie Simpkins, Will Perdue, he went to Vandy with my stepdad, Bill Winnington, I know those guys. But who else knows those guys? Who would know those guys without Jordan? Jordan has his flaws. And as a Jordan fan, I'm keenly aware. But come on, Scotty. I love Scotty. I don't know of a better on ball defender, full court, lockdown, all position defender other than Scotty. But beware of the singing of the crowd. It can ruin relationships. And that's my 23 cents. Mm. Now, with that, I have to say thank you, Pastor Anthony. I think you all should go hit that like button. I think you should hit that subscribe button. I think you should go and leave some comments in the comment section because I think that that was just definitely a blessing. Once again, thank you, Pastor Anthony. That was a beautiful story. All right, welcome back. Uh, time to bring in uh, probably my favorite author of the last five years, maybe. I can't remember when I read Hillbilly Elegy. 
but it's written by J.D. Vance, former U.S. Marine, political commentator. He's now running for Senate in Ohio. Uh, J.D.'s book, Hillbilly Elegy, had a profound impact on me. J.D.'s from, I believe, Middletown, Ohio. Uh, one of my best friends, roommates from college, like a brother to me, Ralph Wise, is from Middletown. And when I read Hillbilly Elegy, I remember calling everybody I knew and my family, friends, and was like, man, you gotta read this book. White people just like us. <laughs> that's a, literally, that's what I kept calling my friends and telling them and family. I, I bought the book for my mother, my aunt, uh, some of my friends. It was like, it, it was fascinating for me to read Hillbilly Elegy because it was just like my family in virtually every way. And it's one of the most powerful books I ever read. And so I wanted to talk to JD about his book, what he's doing now. Uh, JD, when, when you were writing the book, Hillbilly Elegy, did you envision in your mind there would be black people like me that would be like, oh my God, I relate to every syllable in this book? Yeah, well, first of all, man, thanks for having me. It's an honor to, to speak with you. I've been a fan uh, for a long time. Um, no, I, you know, I, I guess I just wrote the book for my own purposes because I had an argument that I wanted to make and I had a story I wanted to tell. And I didn't totally expect uh, that there would be a lot of folks, like like you said, especially black folks uh, with some ties to the Deep South who who saw some part of their story and my story. And it's one of the most gratifying parts of, of having written the book and the response to it is I just hear, I do hear from a lot of people and they're like, you know, this story is my story, even though they're not necessarily, you know, white people from Appalachia, uh, there's still a lot that, uh, that, that folks can identify with. The movie, when I read a book, I'm reluctant to watch a movie. And because I was like, how can you do better than the book? And, and I don't want to be frustrated. I had a lot of people that watched the movie enjoyed it but i never watched the movie because i read the book and i didn't and i heard people's interpret were you satisfied with the movie yeah i was i thought they did a good job with it you know it's it's one of those weird things where all of these producers were coming to us asking if i was interested in turning the book into a movie and of course you know, originally I was like, you know, absolutely not. I don't want to turn this into a movie. You feel like you lose control. And obviously it's your family's story. And I kind of assumed that my family would be really, really resistant uh, to having the story on the big screen. Cause obviously that brings it to a lot of additional eyes and you don't have the same level of control. And then, you know, it's, it's funny when I start talking to them, I realized they were actually more interested in the idea of doing a movie maybe than I was. They, they definitely thought, you know, absolutely, you should start having these conversations. And so I, I still didn't want to do it, but eventually I talked to a group of people I thought uh, were, were interested in making the story in the right way. And, you know, there are little things that I quibble with. I, I don't think anybody who's ever had a book turned into a movie is ever 100% satisfied. Uh, but I thought, you know, for what it was and for as difficult of a story as it was to translate into a film, I thought they did a very good job with it. And the thing that I, it mattered most to me was how they did Mammal. You know, she's sort of the, the most important person in my life. She's the person who raised me, but she just looms over us, uh, all of us in our family in such such a big way that I didn't want them to screw Mammal up. And I thought that, uh, you know, Glenn Close, despite not being politically aligned, she really got it. Like she, she really nailed who Mammal was. She got her, her little mannerisms right. And that was the most important thing to me. 
That was one of the things I could relate to, although <clears throat> my relationship with my mother, very strong. She raised me and my brother. My relationship with my dad, very strong, very involved with me and my brother's life. And I lived with him my senior year of high school after my parents' divorce. Uh, but my grandmother on my mother, we called her Mama Lovey, is the most important person in my life. And that was one of the things I could really relate to. And she was the backbone of our family. I, 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 and so I've already described kind of what my takeaway from the book was, that the way it hit me was just like how universal my experience was. I didn't know that like, white people had basically the same kind of background and upbringing as me. What, were, what was your goal? What were you trying to do with the book? What story were you trying to tell beyond just a recording of your personal history? What was the point of the book from your point of view? Yeah, you know, it was, it was a little bit of that, right? I mean, I, I thought that a lot of these conversations about poverty and inequality, they're very often racialized. It's all about black versus white. And I thought that, you know, there were some universal experiences there. And there were some things that were true about a lot of poor people, whatever the color of their skin in our country. And so there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of, you know, wanting to try to understand why it was that certain groups or certain people or, you know, maybe, you know, if, if, you're, if you're white and you grew up in rural Kansas, you have a different likelihood of climbing up the socioeconomic ladder than if you're, you know, poor white kid growing up in southwestern Ohio, I wanted to try to understand what the differences were a little bit. And I thought one way would be to just to dive into the details on my family. You know, but I also just thought that, you know, kids who grew up like I did, it's not like there was a book that when I had when I was growing up, I was like, oh, this sort of explains me or this at least gives me you know, some sense that people were trying to tell my story. So a little bit of it is just, I didn't think that, that people like us, right? People like me and my family had stories told about us that often. And, uh, you know, I thought, it, I thought it was worth writing it down. All right, the book <clears throat> elevated your platform, obviously made you a lot of money. It was a bestseller for a long time. I don't think I would have read that book and predicted, oh, one day he'll be running <laughs> for the Senate. He's going to involve himself in politics. I don't think that's what you imagined either. So how did you wind up wanting to get this involved in politics? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, man. It, you know, it really what, what the book did is it gave me a platform. So like you said, I'm, I'm going on TV, I'm going on podcasts, I'm talking to people about you know, problems that exist in the country. And, you know, I sort of, you know, was, was on TV a lot in 2016, 2017, but, you know, still, even though I wasn't on TV as much, I was still talking about a lot of these problems and, you know, having some success in the business world. My family was getting started. I, you know, married, we've got two, two babies with one on the way. And I, I, I eventually just got to this point where I started getting sick of complaining about the problems and not doing anything about it. And, you know, I've always cared about politics, I've always cared about the direction of the country. And so, you know, one thing led to another, uh, a political opportunity opened up and I decided to throw my hat in the ring, not really, you know, thinking too seriously about, you know, what, what it would require or what it would mean, just feeling like I, I had a voice and I don't want politics to be just a bunch of scumbags yelling at each other. I thought that, you know, that there should be some honest people in the process. And I know I'm an honest guy, uh, at least I try to be. And so I, I threw my hat in the ring. 
do you, th <laughs> and I, this is a horribly cynical question, but it's, it's <laughs> like the reason the thought of ever getting involved in, I've never voted JD, is because I'm just incredibly cynical and think that American politics can't be fixed. Obviously, you think you can make a difference. You can improve the situation. Why? You know, a good friend of mine who's, who's uh, he was an important person and, and actually, you know, I kind of grew up a Christian, lost my faith and then returned to it later in life. You know, once told me that despair is a sin. And I, I think I'm exactly like you, man. I, I tend to think of our process as hopelessly broken. The only people who do it have some major character flaw. And so it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of a broken process enriching people instead of solving the country's problems. Uh, but then I, I, I try to take that, that to heart, that despair really is a sin. And if you give up on things, um, then, then maybe you're not just, you know, giving your country over to the wolves, but you're also kind of in, in an important way, I think committing something uh, that most of us don't want to commit, which is just giving up. And I, I decided that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, may, maybe our country does have some really, unsolvable problems, but you don't really know uh, if you can be a positive force until you make make a run at it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm trying to run the campaign that, that I think should be run. I'm trying to run something that I, I'm going to be proud of looking back, however successful or unsuccessful it is. Uh, but at the end of the day, despair is a sin, man. We can't give up on this country. I think all of us love it uh, in our own way. And the only way to make it better is to, is to try to contribute our voice in some way. I mean, I, I will say, like, I think if you were totally hopeless, you probably wouldn't do what you do right now. So I think all of us in our own little way feel like we can make a difference. We just got to figure out how that is. I, you've said some very powerful words to me that I literally just wrote down to spare as a sin. I'm glad you said that to me. I, I really am. That's going to have an impact on my life. And you're right. One of the reasons I do what I do is because I am trying to make an impact. Uh, and so, I, you know, I'm glad you said that to me. The number one thing from my view is we have to address big tech and the way it has manipulated public discourse in this country. I believe Silicon Valley, the social media apps have so clouded our vision of what's really going on in America that if we don't address that, we can't even, we can never get to the real issues. And, and, and I'll just give you an example of, Social media has us so focused on police brutality and how police engage with 20 criminals a year. And we must fix that. And, and it's like, this, what a distraction social media has put up because I always say the real police officers that can make an impact in a child's life are called mom and dad. And if mom and dad aren't the first police officers, you can't fix anything. And so we should be having a discussion about mom and dad getting reinserted into the lives of all children. But instead, we're debating how what training sessions we can put police in so that they'll know how to treat the kids that we ignore as children, that parents ignore, so they'll know how to treat them properly when they run afoul of the law. That's why I just, big tech, the social media apps and what they've, how they've corrupted public discourse. That's my number one issue. What is yours? 
Yeah, you know, that's definitely up there. It's one of the things I talk the most about in the campaign. You're exactly right that you know, big tech, what it does is it distracts us from, I think, the real issues. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, you know, people used to talk about, even on the left, right, the left and the right, people used to talk about the fact that fatherlessness was one of the major social problems in our country, that whatever the color of your skin, if you grow up without a daddy in the home, uh, you're, you're in serious trouble. I mean, that is the sort of conversation that's almost impossible to have in the era of social media uh, because you know, the social media algorithms will either actively censor it or you may even get banned. I mean, if you, if you have that conversation, you know, maybe you're being transphobic or maybe you're being sexist or you know, whatever sort of modern buzzword they're going to apply to your, to, your, to your language just by admitting, I think, a universal human truth uh, that it's important for a kid to grow up with a mom and dad in the home. But you know, I also think you know, social media does have this way of focusing us on these huge distractions. I mean, of course, you know, any mo- any any tragedy is a tragedy. Any moment of police brutality is a problem, but it is not a significant and common problem in our country. I mean, you know, like it is just not that common for a cop to needlessly attack and commit violence against another person. It just doesn't happen that often. It doesn't, doesn't mean it doesn't happen at all, but a lot of things happen, right? People get hit by lightning. Uh, people have, you know, furniture fall over on their kid and, and the kid gets seriously injured. That doesn't mean it's a serious problem that should require our constant focus. Like what is a very serious problem that should require a little bit more of our focus is that we have a crime problem in this country. You're far more likely uh, to be shot and killed by a non-police officer than you are to be uh, indiscriminately targeted because um, because the police just feel like you know going off on you. And yet we don't talk about the crime problem enough in this country. I think I saw yesterday Philadelphia is likely to have a record number of murders this year. Like that's a 10 times bigger problem than police brutality. But we don't talk about that exactly like you said, because the social media companies don't let us. And I think it's important for us to ask, you know, what's going on here? Like, why do the social media companies actually have a business model built around distracting us from the real problems? Uh, And what does that say about our economy? You know, think about this from the perspective of a bright, talented kid who's about to enter the workforce. Like, do we want them going off and curing cancer? Do we want them building rockets? Or do we want them, you know, working at a social media company, getting our kids addicted to these applications and further distorting the public conversation that we're having well, we know it pays better to go and work at a social media company than it does to go and cure cancer. But doesn't doesn't it have this really warped effect on our whole economy, our whole culture that so many of our bright young people are going and working at Facebook or Twitter instead of something else? So, you know, it's it's the social media conversation is so big. It's like, what do we focus on as an economy? What are our children consuming in their information? What social problems are we distracted from? How do the social media companies influence and control our elections? Because we know that they censor, I think, conservatives uh, much more than they ever censor liberals. So it's a big, big issue. But I agree, it's kind of crazy. We've let these five companies that don't have any obvious investment in our country control what we're allowed to say, how we're allowed to say it, the way money flows across our economy. It's completely insane. And it didn't happen by accident. So I saw... Earlier this week, you tweeted out about Twitter's new CEO. I can't pronounce his name. I'm just going to try Parag Agrawal. And he tweeted out, uh, if they are not going to make a distinction between Muslims and extremists, then why should I distinguish between white people and racists? 
You retweeted that and said the new Twitter CEO has some interesting views. And this speaks to the difficulty, in my view, of being J.D. Vance, white guy from Ohio running for political office and trying to be a voice for change or a, a, a better America, but you got people like this guy, anytime you, you start talking about fatherlessness or uh, just self-responsibility, you're gonna get accused of being a racist. H how do you combat that? Well, I think I just accept that it's the cost of doing business. I mean, our country is so crazy right now, and everybody who utters an uncomfortable view gets called a racist, that if you're unwilling to accept it, and you're unwilling to make your arguments anyways, and I think you're not fit uh, to be you know, a leader in the public conversation these days. And the way that I think about the charge of racism is that 99% of the time that somebody gets called a racist in our country, it's by a powerful person who wants to shut somebody up who's complaining and making a, a very legitimate complaint about what's going on in our country. So let's say you don't like the fact that, you know, thousands of, of pounds of fentanyl are flowing into your community across the southern border, uh, killing your neighbors, making your communities less safe. Well, if you complain about that problem, then the leaders of the Democratic Party will call you a racist. They'll call you a xenophobe. Uh, or let's say you're worried about the rise of violent crime in your community. You want police uh, to be you know, really encouraged to do their job and keep your community safe. Well, of course, you're encouraging police brutality. So now you're a racist. So now, you know, you're not allowed to complain about the lawlessness in your own community. And I, and I think that because that's what's going on, basically racism is a, is a charge that the powerful use to shut up the powerless. They're not c concerned about people of color. They're concerned about their own power. You know, those of us who have been given a little bit extra in life, you know, I've had a lot of lucky opportunities. A lot of things have broken my way. Certainly I've worked hard. Um, but if I'm not willing to have the courage to speak up on behalf of people who are constantly getting bullied in our public discourse these days, uh, then our country is going to be totally screwed. And I, and I kind of think of it, you know, yeah, I have made a little bit of money, have had some success in business. I do have a platform. Like if I'm not going to use it to accomplish something meaningful, uh, then, then, then what am I here for? What purpose am I actually serving? So yeah, I'm going to get called a racist, but you know, um, that's, that's, uh, I think, so long as you recognize that most of the people who are doing it are doing it for fraudulent reasons, and so long as you've got a little courage and a lot of a lot of stability, then you got to do it. JD, you are willing to admit you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. I mean, you've got to at least admit that. I mean, you were born on you were born sliding into home plate. I mean, you face no adversity. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You know, white, white privilege in our family, you know, raised by my grandparents, uh, mam, mamaw begging the meals on wheels people uh, for a little bit extra so she could feed me. You know, it's it's I, I think that's that's right, man. The, the fact that I didn't grow up with the silver spoon in my mouth makes me sort of laugh when these people accuse me of white privilege. Like, look, they're going to call me what they want to call me, but they're all full of full of it. Let me ask you a trickier question. How do you sure. handle uh the Trump phenomenon, and, and, and I ask that because I feel like I have some friends, uh, black friends, that agreed with a lot of Trump's policies, but found his personality so off-putting, they just 
and, and, and particularly their wives found his personality so off-putting that they would have damn near had to destroy their homes uh, to support Donald Trump. And so I'm someone that I don't find Trump's policies off-putting. I don't really find his approach off-putting. But I do think his approach limits his ability to reach everybody. I think his time has passed. Uh, I think he served a purpose and woke people's eyes and minds up to the reality of how swampy and corrupt our political system is. But I, I just don't, if he's the face of the Republican Party, I'm not sure if Republicans are going to be heard in the way they could be heard if someone like yourself or Ron DeSantis or Josh Hawley were more the face of the Republican Party. You know, it's, it's funny because I think I understand your friends because, you know, five, six years ago, I was pretty critical of some of Trump's um, rhetoric and, and, and became a fan of his as I watched him in office. I think a lot of the response that people have to Trump is that they ignore that a lot of times he's joking. Right. I, I think that, you know, you, you got to have a little bit of a sense of humor about this stuff. But I recognize some people don't. Uh, but this was a big thing for me is when I realized that a lot of the things that Trump said, he was basically making fun of a political process that had become a joke. I started to really appreciate his approach more than uh, more than, than than find it disagreeable. And that's a big part of my own political transformation of the last five or six years. But, you know, I, I guess the way that I, I think about the whole Trump phenomenon is is that it revealed a couple of things, right? One is that it revealed how incredibly broken a lot of our country is, right? I mean, we had had 30 or 40 years of bipartisan leaders on both sides basically saying, no, it's fine that we ship our entire manufacturing base off to China so long as we get a lot of cheap garbage from the Chinese. It doesn't matter if millions of middle class, primarily men, lose their jobs. And I think Trump really blew up that consensus. And that will be the long-term legacy of Trump, whether he serves another you know, term as president or not. People will rem remember him as the guy who ended the consensus on globalization and the effect that it had on this country. Uh, but you know, the other thing that I'd say about Trump in, in his defense is he, he, he revealed how corrupt the Republican establishment was in a way that I had never you know, fully appreciated until I actually saw the last four or five years. I mean, think about like the issues of trade and immigration in particular. Like, this is not just a guy who was disagreeing with the Democrats. This was a guy who was actively battling the 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 establishment of his own party on the two fundamental issues: you know, trade and immigration, where I think he was elected on. Uh, I'd say, say maybe the same about national security. You know, I I talked to Trump. I don't know four or five months or so ago, uh, and I, I've talked to him since then. But he, you know, he was sort of explaining to me how hard the generals were fighting him on doing some you know, troop withdrawals in the Middle East. And it's like, man, you know, if you cannot get um, the troops out of the Middle East because the generals are constantly fighting you, like, what does that say about how corrupt our military establishment is in this country? So I think you, I think you revealed a lot. And, you know, whether he wants to be the president, whether he wants to be a kingmaker, um, you know, love him or hate him, I think Trump is going to be a major figure in the party for the next you know, at least the next few years until he decides what he's going to do in 24. Part of what frustrates me about the Republican Party is, is when particularly the establishment, I think they're elitist, just like a lot of the people on the left. And there, there seems to be 
a lack of comfort with the fact that the Republican Party is now the party of the working class. And I don't know if they're comfortable with that. And that's what makes me optimistic about you getting involved in politics because your background is so working class. And, and, but, but I don't know if the establishment is totally comfortable being the party that represents people that like to bowl on Wednesdays and play softball on Saturdays and maybe doesn't want to go to college. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And of course, you know, Trump was the figure, I think, more than anybody else who made the party a working class party, revealed what the party had become. And, you know, like I, I thought a lot about, you know, pe people like my voters, but, but, but more than my voters, right, my family, right, they love Donald Trump. They think that he is just he's the funniest. He's the best president we've ever had. I mean, there is a strong amount of support for the president among my immediate family. And I thought about a, a lot about like what that is. And to, to, to go back to your question, it, it's not just any particular policy. It's not any particular achievement. It's, I think Trump was the first person in politics who didn't obviously hate people who voted for him, right? The Republican establishment, I think, doesn't like the working class voters who make up the Republican Party. Donald Trump likes those people, right? He likes our people. And that is such a powerful thing when you've had a Republican Party that's become more working class. The leaders don't like the actual voters. And then you have a president who comes along and actually likes those voters. I think that it just creates a powerful bond, which is why, you know, I, I'd say Trump, I think, has earned the ability to figure out his own future in these things. And of course, the voters have uh, the most important say in this. But my guess is that Trump's going to run again. And I think he probably wins again because there's no one else in the Republican Party. I mean, at the elite leadership level, like I'm running for Senate. Obviously, I think I'm going to win. I hope I'm going to win. But I think most of the establishment Republicans, they still don't like their own voters. And there's there's no way to run a party successfully when you don't like your own voters. That's not true of Trump. You think that's true of Ron DeSantis? Oh, no. It's, I mean, you know, Ron, obviously, governor of Florida. My guess is Ron probably likes his own voters. Uh, I, I really mean like the, the, the existing infrastructure of the party, the consultants, the think tank professionals, the people who act, the lobbyists, the people who actually you know, run the infrastructure of the party. I think a lot of the elected officials, you know, the Josh Hawley's of the world. He's a friend of mine. I've gotten to know Ron DeSantis a little bit. I do think they actually like their own voters. Um, but I, I think because Trump was like the first person to make those people feel seen, you know, make our people like my people feel seen. I think he's really got uh, he's in the driver's seat, I'd say, politically. That's that's my guess. You made me think of another point or an analogy or something that I think is important, something that has fascinated me over the last five to six years is and, and this is connected to what we're talking about, but it's a different direction. I'm amazed the fact that Tucker Carlson, who Silver Spoon Kid looks like an elitist, he has become on TV and in the media world the voice of the working class man. And and I don't I won't put white man on that. If people would actually open their ears and eyes and listen to what he's saying, this little former bow tie wearing nerd 
is actually the voice of working class. And, and it, it, that he embodies the transformation that I think the rest of the establishment has to go through. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think Tucker is the most important voice on TV because he gets these issues and he gets our voters in a way that no other media personality really does. And I, I think, yeah, I, absolutely. It's, you know, both in saying the things that you're not allowed to say, but in elevating certain people, certain conversations, certain issues that nobody else is doing. I mean, I, I think this guy is, is really, you know, an important driver of, you know, what I call the populist conservative movement in this country. And he will be, you know, for, for the next decade. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. I met Tucker probably five or so years ago. I'd never been on a show. We talked a little bit. I was like, man, this guy gets it more than any media figure I've spoken to. And then we became pretty good friends since then. And I think he's done an incredible job just holding politicians feet to the fire. Like you, you watch Tucker and sometimes he's given it as hard to Republican politicians as he is Democratic politicians. Just very few people I think are willing to offend anyone but unless you're willing to offend people, you're not going to get a good point across. J.D., I want to end on a somewhat lighter note, but I actually kind of want to know how you did it. Uh, you come from nowhere, Middletown, Ohio. You end up at an Ivy League school. How, why, and one, I got a uh, cousin that's going to high school in, in Indianapolis. She's being recruited by Ivy League schools. I've told a few people in the family, I, th I think it's a mistake. They brainwash you, they indoctrinate you. How did you survive your Ivy League education with your morals, principles, and worldview still intact? Yeah, I always just remembered where I came from. Definitely that brainwash is real. I mean, there is a lot of pressure to conform to what they want you to think and how they want you to live your life. But I just tried to stay grounded. I tried to remember where I came from. I tried to remember that, you know, I didn't want to build a life in Washington or New York. I wanted to build a life in, in this, the home state where I came from. And that always just kept me grounded and, and kind of gave me a true north. Um, I, you know, an important part of it is, is it in, the, in the book touches on this a little bit is that I really had sort of lost my faith and then started to regain it towards the end of law school. And I think that was an important part, again, of keeping me grounded, of, of making sure that I had the right morals and principles guiding me. And so, you know, I think each person is different. Uh, no, no idea whether it's a good idea for your cousin uh, to, to, to go to, uh, to an Ivy League school. But I, I'd say, you know, my, my advice to anybody is remember where you actually came from Remember that the people who think that they know everything sometimes have a lot less wisdom, even if they've got credentials than the people that made you who you are. J.D., thank you so much for the time. Uh, we'll be supporting you and rooting for you. Love to have you back on again. Awesome job. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. That's J.D. Vance. Go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe. Hit the likes. Hit the notifications if you're listening over Apple. Uh, I need a five-star review right now. Stop what you're doing. Hit pause. Give me that five-star review. Uh, write a little something, a little message. I read all the comments on there. All right, stick around. We got more. Nerds.
time for my favorite time of the week. It's time for some Tennessee Harmony. Time for uh, pastors Bobby Harrington and Anthony Walker from Renew.org uh, to join our conversation and to lead our conversation. And I'm very excited about today's conversation because uh, these guys can really help me uh, crystallize or understand or come to a conclusion about what my point of view should be on all the criminal justice reform uh, that we're seeing being pushed across America. Uh, we had a conversation earlier this week, I believe, between Dave Shannon and I about Daryl Brooks. And, uh, and then we had a conversation, I think, the week before about the Julius Jones guy that was facing the death penalty in Oklahoma. And there's a conversation going on in America about bail reform and, again, criminal justice reform. And are we being too soft on crime, too hard on crime? What should uh, the Christian worldview and perspective be? I'll tell you guys right before uh, the show today, I was reading about a case in Philadelphia uh, about a, a young, a teenager who's had a long criminal history starting when he was age 13 uh, and some violent crime uh, that he, that <clears throat> drug dealing and carjacking. And I believe he was the prosecutor there in Philadelphia had basically just dropped carjacking charges. And then within two or three weeks or at least a month, I believe afterwards, after having these carjacking charges drop, He's murdered somebody, and now they're out looking for him. Uh, and I believe the kid's like 17, 18 years old. He murdered a, uh, allegedly murdered a Temple uh, University student. Constantly, we're in conversations about uh, what should our position be on criminal justice reform. And so I wanted a biblical perspective from uh, my two experts here in Nashville. Uh, and so before I ask you guys for a response, I don't want to forget, could you guys bless this conversation with a short prayer? And then I can't wait to dive into this topic. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful so much for this opportunity to uh, share in your word. Father, we pray for those that are tuning in and even for uh, those here at the studio. Father, we pray that as we discuss these things, that it's always pleasing and acceptable in your sight and filled with grace and love. I agree with that. And again, for everybody watching, for all of us, uh, God, we look to you and ask you to guide us through this conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, I'll throw, who wants to start first? I just, are we too soft on crime? Is that why violent crime is rising? Is that why we feel less safe in America? Is, is there, I've heard some people argue like, we're, we're worried about criminal justice and not victim justice, and that perhaps things are out of balance. Uh, so first I wanna start with an opinion. Are we a bit overboard in, with concern for criminal justice issues? You go first. <laughs> I was about to pass you the ball. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take the ball then. Okay, you go ahead. I, I, think, I think that we lack clarity, and I think that it's really confusing today and it's a dangerous place. Um, and so my opinion is we need clarity and we need some uh, principles from scripture on truth and justice 
to bring the clarity. The only one I would add to that would be consistency. I think that's yeah. I think that's the issue where some of our problems come is that it's not really consistent. So clarity, uh, obviously a biblical perspective and consistency. So what does the Bible say about capital punishment? Uh, I've had I've all long been an anti death penalty person. Uh, I, I just think the risk of killing the wrong person, an innocent person is too high. And even if let's say it's only a one percent chance, part of me is like, man, that's too much of a risk. Uh, and, and we can never be a thousand short of a confession. But, you know, sometimes confessions aren't the mm -hmm, greatest. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been anti capital punishment, but that's been me. That hasn't been me interpreting it through a biblical perspective. Where's the Bible stand on this? So Anthony and I don't agree on this. Oh, that's so this good. Is, this is going to be an interesting conversation, and it's not a hard disagreement. Mm -hmm. uh, Jason, let, as I'll go ahead first, but I want to set the stage. In the Bible, we say that there's three categories of truth. There's essential truth, like essential for your eternal destiny. The second category is important truth for your faithfulness. These are, these are areas where uh, to be faithful to God, you want to get them right. That your eternal destiny may not depend on them, but you want to get them right. And then the third area is God, God has some freedom uh, where he teaches us that, you know, different people are going to have different convictions on this, and that's okay. I'll give you an example of the third one because uh, it just makes it easier. There are some Christians who can drink alcohol and some don't. There, you can't point to the Bible and say, everybody should be able to drink and everybody shouldn't be able to drink. It's a nuanced thing, depending on the person. So that would be the third category. What we're talking about now in terms of how a Christian should look at it, I have an opinion that uh, on what the Bible teaches. I think it's in that gray area between important and personal opinion. So I don't want to act like, you know, if you don't look at it the way we do, you're not going to heaven. But this is more, hey, how can we really have the mind of God in how we think about that? Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. So let me jump in first, and then I'll yield to my uh, worthy opponent friend here <laughs> who has a, a different point of view. Um, let's start with Genesis uh, chapter 9. So I'll just run through a couple of passages to kind of lay the ground, uh, and then we'll let Anthony respond. And, uh, of course, you jump in at any point. So after the flood in the book of Genesis, however you understand the flood, Genesis 9, 6 says, so after humanity has been wiped out and there's eight people left after the flood, God gives this principle. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So the idea is unlike animals, that you're going to uh, kill to eat, uh, anybody who kills a human, uh, then they're going to lose their blood. In other words, they're going to lose their life. Leviticus 24, verse 17 says this, Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. So in the Old Testament, <clears throat> where God lays down both ceremonial and moral principles, and sometimes you have to delineate between the two. He just gives the principle, if you take a human life, you're going to give up your life. 
So that capital punishment is clearly taught there and on other areas. Then when you go into the New Testament, I would argue <clears throat> that the New Testament assumes that principle. So in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a group of Christians in ancient Rome, and he just lays down this principle. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. So he's talking about any kind of government in the land, God's behind the government. And then he says, the authorities that exist have been established by God. For the one in authority, that'd be the government, is God's servant for your good. But if they do wrong, be afraid. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> but if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So if you see that, agents of wrath with the sword to bring punishment. And in Rome, we know uh, that's how they put Roman citizens to death. They would chop off their head. So that's the basic grid by which I would say that capital punishment uh, is a right thing to uphold. Any? Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I actually Go do. Go ahead. But it, it may okay. sidetrack us briefly. Okay. okay. The, the, the ending or part of your description to me sounds like there should be an obedience to government. Yeah. And so where my mind immediately went is like, so if the government wants everybody to take a vaccine, <laughs> we should do it. And so it, it sounds like whatever the government wants us to do, we should do. I, 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 do you believe that? <clears throat> Here's the principle in the Bible. The default position is to obey the government unless it causes you to disobey the laws of God. So if the government is asking you to violate your conscience, you would go with your conscience. Hmm. But the default position should be well, to follow what the government says. Okay, and so I could see a lot of people saying the death penalty violates their conscience. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> <laughs> what a segue. Uh, I, I, like, I like the foundation that he put. Uh, I had a young man um, that's one of my members at church. We recently talked about this issue and he asked, he's like, hey, you know, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, there's actually scripture uh, that could be interpreted both ways. So when you look at that, and, and as Bobby said, I can't stand as, hey, scripturally, it is absolutely 100% one way or the other, but I do lean towards uh, the anti side of the death penalty for these particular reasons. Um, even in the Old Testament, um, when God is establishing law and, and establishing the way that he wants his people to live in Exodus 23, this is shortly after giving the Ten Commandments, uh, Exodus 23, verse seven, he says, keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not justify the wicked. And so God has a perspective, even in this passage where he's saying, okay, don't be, don't kill the innocent. And so whatever we do as we are trying to punish, as we're trying to find out what happened, let's make sure that we're not taking an innocent life. 
And I need you to trust me to understand that I'm not going to let wickedness just walk on by. So that that kind of guards us to, okay, whatever we're doing, we need to make sure that we do this carefully. But again, that's one of the positions. And then secondly, in Exodus 33 and verse 11, I mean, excuse me, Ezekiel 33 and verse 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God himself is saying, I'm not seeking after death. I do want to punish you, but I really want, the essence of what I really want is for you to turn from your wicked ways. So I'm pleading with you, turn Turn from your wicked ways. So that's the perspective for me. And and as Bobby, you know, kind of offered an opinionated stance, you know, I look at it and this may, you know, land in the in the area of opinion. Um, I don't see the equity in. Wow. We value human life. You know, we down to, you know, abortion rights. And I know that's a hotbed issue for so many. But we say we're going to the nth degree on. Well, when does life starts? Life starts at conception. We don't want any abortion protect every human life. But in the essence of crime, we say, hey, you know, let's let's take this life. And that that's for me. Like, I understand this person committed gruesome crimes. You think about terrorists, you think about the evil that they do. But I don't want any life, not those that they killed or even theirs. And, and I want God, the originator of life. He gave life. I want him to be able to take that life. Mm. Bobby, <laughs> what's your... I think that, that's not a strong argument. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I got one more verse, but I'm going to let Bobby go, go again. Come on in. So, so the, the passages that Anthony used mm-hmm. uh, were from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And it's really clear in the Old Testament that God teaches them to use the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So these are passages that talk about making sure that you don't kill an innocent person, mm-hmm. which that would be right. You got to make sure... In fact, in the Old Testament, that God lays down the principles by which you make sure with witnesses that the person that you're giving the penalty to is the person who did it. And nobody can ever be a 100% failsafe, but we need to try to make sure that you're giving the proper penalty to the right person. And so I think those passages are there. And, and there's always compassion, even, even with the person who loses the way and kills somebody and then in the Old Testament, you have to take his life. There's still compassion, but it doesn't take away from the proactive teaching of the capital of capital punishment in the Old Testament. Here's one of the things with the Julius Jones case in Oklahoma. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but I am because I got a friend who was a lawyer who's heavily involved in defending Julius Jones. And so I've I've heard the defense side of his argument very well. I've heard the other side very well. One of the conclusions I reached, and and it's a conclusion that I've been told Julius actually reached, and the governor there, Governor Stitt, actually commuted his sentence. They didn't give him the death penalty at the last minute. But, But where Julius has told the friend of mine, and I think others, is like innocence can be a bit vague in, 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 in my view, in terms of Julius has a compelling argument that he didn't do the killing. He does not have a compelling argument, in my opinion, from everything I've been told, 
that he didn't put himself in a series of positions that allowed him to be accused very credibly of this crime and that he was involved in other activities that perhaps he never got caught doing and he was running around with the people who actually did the killing. He actually uh, was the, the, the guy that got killed. He was uh, spotted or he was somewhere in the guy's car. Mm. And, and again, he was friend, his best friend is the guy that did the killing and they had done other things together. Uh, and, and so he put himself in a position where if, if I couldn't have been framed of this crime, because Heath says his best friend framed him, uh, spent the night at his house, planted the weapon and uh, the bandana and some other things in his house. And a lot of what he describes, it's, it's very plausible and credible, but Julius had been running around doing mm. criminal activity and running around with dangerous criminals where he put himself in a spot where they could frame him and 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 he could and so I, I'm not sure if 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 you know he's in perhaps innocent of this particular crime, but the stuff that he perhaps got away with and the position he put himself in, you know, there's all kinds of, for me, there's all kinds of different ways to interpret. The wages of sin is death. Mm. And uh, <laughs> you, you, you run up a big debt of sin. Wow. You may, <laughs> there's a lot of different ways that your life can be taken. And, and, you know, sitting in a box for the rest of your life, basically you've died. It's just a much slower death. Mm -hmm. uh, let me uh, just press you though on that a little bit because this gets at some of the problem that I have with what's going on. That's the lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. So you're, what you're saying is, hey, he may not have been guilty of this crime, but it's not a bad thing that they get him because he was guilty of similar crimes. What that can do, and, and maybe that's not what you're saying. Not exactly, but it, it's a fair but, interpretation. But it's this lack of clarity. So um, let's, let's take something that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, people coming across the southern border, okay? They're coming across the southern border, and the idea is that we just let them in because they're coming from poor countries with a lot of difficulties, and it's the compassionate thing to do. The difficulty is, why do you say that, oh, just let them in, let's not pay attention to the law? But I have a friend in my church uh, who he married a woman from Japan. They were married in Japan. He's an American citizen. She cannot get into the country because they're trying to do it the right way. And so she cannot get into the country. And uh, they've been married for about a year now. She can't get into the country. No criminal background or anything. It's just the legal hoops when you do it the right way. So what you see is that there's two sets of the application of the law. One is a permissive and the other is an overly strict one. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is you don't do that. If it's a poor person, you don't say, ah, uh, you can commit some crimes because you're poor. It's going to be okay. And you're rich, uh, uh, you're rich, so we're gonna let you off. No, there's a, there's a clarity of what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. I have a friend who says what's right is right, 
even if every, uh, he goes, what's right is right, even if nobody's doing it, and what's wrong is wrong, even if everybody's doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's the sense that there is clarity on what's right or wrong. I'd like to show you a passage on that. But Hold for one second. I want to ask a follow-up to your point, and I want to hear Anthony kind of respond to it, because this is something that I've thought about since I was a little kid. I was blessed with great parents who actually taught me what was right and taught me what was wrong. Mm -hmm. There are some people that don't grow up with great parents, don't grow up with anybody that teaches them what's right and what's wrong. How do we deal with those? And, and I don't want to call names in my family, but there's people in my family I love to death whose foundation wasn't built the way my foundation was from childhood. And so I do have sympathy for them and, and it's like they didn't, no one, no one instilled in them mm -hmm. that foundation. H how, how should we handle, look upon? I get why people are sympathetic towards those people. Mm. That's the inconsistency that he's, you know, laying out. The clarity, the inconsistency of how the law is done, even the compassion and empathy and sympathy that you have in that relation. That's why for me, death is too harsh of a sentence to give without that clarity, without that understanding, and definitely without that you know, consistency. There are those now in our justice system that have done, you know, horrendous, you know, serial rape. They get probation. You have these others that get, you know, a certain amount of, you know, back payments on their child support and they're locked up for two or three years. Like, how does this line up? And as it relates to the death penalty, we see with the Julius Jones and with others where, ah, uh, it could have been, and well, I don't know, and well, it seemed like, well, let's, and, and it, we need an, almost an act of God to, wait a minute, hold on, guys, let's not commit, let's not, let's not kill them over this. There was an instance, you know, Bobby mentioned that, you know, I gave those Old Testament passages, and yes, in the Old Testament, God certainly did, God did some killing, commanded some killing as it relates to sin. Um, John 1, uh, around verse number 15, it says that Moses brought the law, but Jesus comes with grace and truth. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is on a scene where elements of the law were on the stage. Uh, he talks about how in the Old Testament, God did put or God instituted some, hey, if there's a crime that happens, I need to see, you know, there needs to be witnesses. This needs to be verified. So in John chapter eight, teachers of the law, they come to Jesus. We have caught this woman in the act. Now, the law of Moses commands, commands us that we stone her. What do you say? This is what they did to Jesus. What do you say about the matter? Jesus kneels on the ground, you know, write something with his finger. We don't really know what he wrote down. And he comes up and that's when he gives the infamous statement to him who has no sin, cast the first stone. He gives grace to this woman. He commands her to sin no more, which was the emphasis of what the law was to do. I don't want you to sin. 
He gives grace to the man. We don't even hear about the man. Obviously, there's grace to the man. He wasn't stoned. Nobody was stoned. Death penalty was not enacted. Grace was given and the charge of repentance was given. So when I match that with God's Old Testament principle of I don't want the death, I really want you to repent. And I see Jesus enacting. I don't want the death. I really want you to repent. That's where I stand, even as you bring up the, the relatives that you have that, man, you guys have done these things and you didn't really know they stand better receiving grace, which is how God approaches all of us. God approaches everybody first with grace. And then there's the emphasis towards repentance. So that's what I want for everybody, even down to the most ardent, because, yes, their sins may be more egregious and more illicit than my sins. But all of our sins put Christ on the cross. And so if they're guilty of death, the wages of sin being death, I'm guilty of death. The wages of my sin is death. But Christ died for the ungodly. So so that's where, you know, as far as giving that death penalty. Now, you know, Bobby talks about, you know, and, and we, we shared an article the other day or he shared an article with me the other day about this. I think really the discussion is not necessarily for absolutely against there's There's a, a middle ground for those that may be watching as well that that are, you know what? We live in a country that has the death penalty. OK, I personally may not agree with it, but as it being a part of the law of the land. OK. Okay, this is where our law is. Can I fight that law? Can we do things to kind of stop it? There have been states that have kind of paused the death penalty because of so many mistakes. So, okay, they, they, they do that. And we can work more towards uh, getting the system to be more consistent, being more clear on our laws. If we can get to that place, then the death penalty may not necessarily be there. But as a parent, looking even at my kids, the consistency of the law becomes a deterrent to them because they know if this one does it, I'm going to get the same thing when I do it. But when we have that inconsistency with the death penalty, I, I, I can't I can't stand behind that biblically uh, and morally. It's good. <laughs> so uh, one of the things before you respond that I think Anthony has done a really good job at. And, and it's this thing that if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to put front and center. It's grace and truth. So if all it was is truth, you know, we'd all get blown away. Because even today, each of us in this room, we've done things, mm -hmm. uh, maybe lusted after somebody mm -hmm. or, you know, we would have done things. If all it is is truth, human beings are going to get wiped out. Yeah. Okay. But if all it is is grace, then there's no sense of God's holiness and what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it's this combination of grace and truth. Now, if I can, I referred to a passage in the Old Testament. I want to uh, see if we can put it up on the screen. Uh, it's Leviticus 19.15. Jason, when you and I talked the other day, I had stumbled across it. And I think this is a really good passage. Okay. Uh, Leviticus 19.15. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. And so I would advocate that when it comes to these things that we're talking about, that there is a place, a very important place for clarity around right or wrong, 
Now clemency, clemency is a real thing. But clemency is something that is done after the fact when in fact justice has been applied. And that's really God's nature. I want to follow up on because your Leviticus still is rich and poor. Yeah. And, and, and I just want to be on the record. Right now, based on this conversation, I think I'm standing firm. I'm anti-death penalty right now. Uh, <laughs> but because but and I want this rich and poor thing is is important to me because one, I think we talk far too often about race and not about economics as it relates to the criminal justice system. And what is built into our criminal justice system and all of American society is people of means are better able to defend themselves, protect themselves. The systems work better for people with money. And, and that's built into our criminal justice system. And so a lot of times, we run in and just, it's race. Well, the system's unfair to black people. And it's really, as OJ showed us, it's unfair to poor people. And, and so when we say we can't give a different form of justice to the rich and the poor, our system, the way it's set up, does that naturally. And as someone of wealth, I can afford the best attorneys. A poor person gets stuck with a, a public, public defender, defender. Mm -hmm. who's busy as heck and doesn't have time to pr devote the kind of energy that OJ could pay for and all that. And so when a system has it built in that it favors the rich, how, how can we then say, that, hey, we got to make sure that the poor and the rich get treated the same. Well, we got to change the system. If the system is doing that, that's an unjust system. And as followers of Jesus, we ought to be in there doing what we can to change the system. And so you just made a big statement that you're for criminal justice reform, no different than a lot of the woke people in this society. Uh, so it's, if it's right, it's right. Who's ever advocating for it? And so w what someone like myself might say is like, well, now that I'm on the other side of the tracks, I started out on one side. I don't want, I like the system that I can afford. And, and, and what I'm afraid of is that, well, in order to make it fair for everybody, you're going to lower the level of defense I can buy, and, 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 and now the state, which has unlimited resources, uh, can, I'm more vulnerable to the state. And, and so it's a very... But here's, here's the thing about that, Jason, is that when we're really advocates of justice, we, we've got to be true advocates of justice for everybody. It can't just be uh, we're going to vote for or uphold things that benefit us. Justice is justice for everybody. And um, as, as people who follow Jesus, that's where we've got to stand.
totally agree. And it, it, you know, I think if push came to shove, that's where I would come down. But when I'm looking at a system, take the Kyle Rittenhouse case. If, if we were able to evaluate things without looking at the racial element, we would be looking at it like, oh my God, look at these prosecutors and what they're doing. And my God, they're doing this to Kyle Rittenhouse on live TV. Could you imagine what they do when there are no cameras and it's a poor person sitting in that chair? Yeah. Uh, but, but because we got our racial goggles on, it's like we never get to have that discussion. And, and so I look at that Rittenhouse trial and I'm like, whew. Think, let me put some more money in the bank because <laughs> I mm. want to be prepared. If yeah. the state comes after yeah. me, they'll do yeah. anything. Yeah. But think about think about also how some criminals, they're caught on an issue that may lead to something bigger and they get to plea deal out of a very serious crime, whereas others may not get that plea opportunity. And based on what you just brought up with Kyle Rittenhouse, some cases because of their polarization, because of the media attention that it may get, it sways how we even respond to those cases. And that's again where, with all of these elements of inconsistency, we get ready to put somebody to death for all of that, you know, even when we talk about things like, you know, you bring up, I'll let you, but even when we talk about Love things like, point, you know, clemency and all of that, it takes years and letter writing and appeal and the right governor and the right, you know, sentiment at that time to line up. And oftentimes it is at the last moment that we oh, you know, DNA showed he wasn't even there or they weren't even. Oh, OK. Like that's that's the hand in which we put death. I'm good with grace and truth and I'm good with, okay, let's uphold consistent justice. But as we give grace, no, you're not going to be put to death. But the word teaches and I'm going to give you that same biblical truth and we move on as a you know why I like the point is bottom line. I think what we're saying is we haven't built a criminal justice system that's good enough to have the death penalty as a potential outcome. It's just not strong enough, consistent enough, fair enough. You know what? I think that's a strong argument for, for what you're saying, because at the end of the day, I just want to keep coming back and saying, we, we've got to have justice all the way through. Mm -hmm. You can't pick and choose. You, if you're going to be consistent, you got to be consistent all the way. And if it's not fair, if it's if it's a corrupt system, I think that's a strong argument. You better be careful if it's a corrupt system. All right. Uh, I want to switch to a different topic. We'll somewhat lighten the conversation. Uh, I wanted you guys' take on Kanye West and his Thanksgiving prayer. We had this discussion, I think, yesterday. Uh, myself and Delano, uh, and Shamika, Michelle, and, and I wanted a biblical point of view on <laughs> Kanye one calling this a prayer. Uh, I, I don't, it didn't sound like much of a prayer to me. It sounded more like a confession. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it, it, let, let's, for people that didn't see it or haven't heard it, 
I think we got a two-minute chunk or a two-minute, three-minute chunk of Kanye's Thanksgiving prayer, basically begging Kim Kardashian to take him back. And I want you all's take. On this Thanksgiving, I'm so thankful for family, my blood family, my fans and our haters. We love you too. All I think about every day is how I get my family back together and how I heal the pain that I've caused. I take accountability for my actions. New word alert, misactions. The one thing that all my successes and failures have in common is me. Let's start with A, alcohol. I would drink to take the stress away, to knock the edge off. Drinking affected my health and the health of people around, around me because I already had a hair trigger temper and this just heightened it. B, episodes. I went into a manic episode in 2016 and I was placed under heavy medication. Since then, I went on and off the medication which left me susceptible to other episodes which my wife and family and fans have had to endure. When I got saved, it did not immediately make me a better person. It made me a self-righteous Christian. I was arrogant with my Jesus. Like I had just got me some Jesus at the Gucci store with a stimulus check. Let's go with politics here. Good Lord, my wife did not like me wearing the red hat. Being a good wife, she just wanted to protect me and our family. I made me and our family a target by not aligning with Hollywood's political stance. And that was hard for our marriage. Then I ran for president without proper preparation and no allies on either side. I embarrassed my wife in the way that I presented information about our family during the one and thank God only press conference. I've had to learn that I had to take accountability. We always judge and tell other people what they should do, but we can only take accountability for ourselves and our children. This Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for the family that my wife has given me. So that was about two and a half minutes of a five minute prayer. Uh, I'm not, I was not a fan of it. Uh, I, 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 I don't think that should be put out in the public sphere. I think Kanye uh, is in love with attention and fame more than anything else. And, you know, it's an addiction that he can't kick. And it's an addiction that made him marry someone who got married at age 19 while high on ecstasy, got married at age 26 to an NBA journeyman and divorced him 72 days later. And, and Kanye saw that woman who then put out a sex tape and heightened her uh, celebrity. He saw that woman as his ultimate helpmate. And I, I just, I don't like the Thanksgiving prayer. I, I just, how did it strike you all? I have a question for you. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna make a statement and I have a question for you. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm, a, I'm a, on the grace and truth side, I'm like Grace with, with Kanye. Yeah, I know. Um, now, he did say <laughs> something. Like when I, when I came to Christ, he said I was uh, arrogant or whatever. Yeah. You know, he's not been discipled. We've talked about this in the past that, 
you need people to walk with you eyeball to eyeball and heart to heart and help you to, you know, they got to guide you because <clears throat> it's just too hard to live this kind of life by yourself or with people who are just telling you what you want to hear. So um, <clears throat> now I noticed yesterday that only like 900 people had watched that on YouTube. So it's not like a bunch of people watched it. I hope Kim watched it because I think you're right. That was the intended audience. Oh, I think he released it on Instagram and a lot of more people watched oh, it. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, but obviously he's floundering, but he's trying, to, he's trying to do good at the same time. That's why I'm sympathetic to him. How are you different than, than uh, Kanye? <laughs> how am I different yeah, than yeah, Kanye? I wanted, to, I wanted you to articulate that for us. <laughs> how, <laughs> whoo, uh, how am I different than Kanye? In terms of following Jesus. <laughs> Oh, I'm a sinner, no different than Kanye. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm this will sound cr crazy sitting in front of all these cameras, but I really don't care about fame and at all. And I, I don't I'm not obsessed with what people think about me. And so one of the biggest differences between me and Kanye is just, I'm just not in love with fame. And, and I don't make decisions based on how does it help me become more famous. Uh, okay, and, so that's one area. And, and you know, I look, I, I'm, I, I have a much stronger sense of who I am yeah. than Kanye West does. I yeah. think one of the things Shamika pointed out yesterday that I tend to agree with is Kanye's obsessed with Jay-Z. And, you know, I kind of liked her theory that he married Kim Kardashian. That was going to be his version of Beyonce. And it was going to, them two together were going to elevate each other the way Jay-Z and Beyonce have. I'm not trying to be someone else. I'm not competing with someone else. Uh, and I, I, you know, I could go. Talk to me about how you're trying to pursue Jesus differently than Kanye. Oh. At the end of the day, this is the this is the real issue. It's not where we've been or what we struggle with, but it's what we're doing to become the man God wants us to become. How are you different than Kanye? It's tough for me to answer that question because I'm doing a lot of speculating about Kanye. Mm -hmm. And and so it's you're comfortable saying he's not being discipled. I tend to agree with you, but I don't know. It's speculation. I know that my pursuit of a relationship with God is sincere. I'm having a conversation with you all and yesterday trying to, do we think Kanye's sincere here? Do, do, do we think he's got any mentors, any people that he runs things by? Is he, you know, and maybe he is, but for me, like one of the biggest changes in my life is, and I don't know if this makes me different than Kanye. I just, I don't know if Kanye does this, but I probably talk about Jesus every single day with somebody. Awesome. I don't save church for Sunday. I'm actually trying to immerse myself in knowledge 
of God and have this conversation with you and Anthony on Wednesdays, uh, with friends of mine that I could name and talk about, but I'm in a constant conversation. And so most of the things that come out of my mouth, a lot, not most, but a, a high percentage of like, I'm thinking about, I wonder I, what God would think. Can I just so, tell yeah. you, I, like just for the cameras, <laughs> I've seen all of that in your life and I, you're one of the most uh, genuine pursuers of Jesus I know right now. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually wanting to make a point about bringing up Kanye. Talk to me about how you're doing with your church attendance. <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's been pretty much every week if I'm not uh, inside a church building, I'm, I'm on Sundays, my days, my morning, all the way up to football is dedicated to church service uh, or, you know, sometimes I'm even late to football because, you know, that's a, that's I just awesome. can't schedule it. But, but again, I'm trying to not limit church to Sundays. And so like I'm watching my friends, my brother, they send me sermons throughout the week that I'm taking in and I'm, tr I'm literally trying to have church every day. Uh, that's exactly what we all need to be doing. And that's, it's not just being a part of church, which I'm glad to hear <clears throat> that that's something you're pursuing, but you have discipling relationships with people like me and Anthony and others. And the point I'm getting at is that we're not different than Kanye. We just need to help one another to really be who God wants us to be. And that involves discipling relationships, it involves active involvement in church, it involves uh, people in our lives who are gonna tell us what we need to hear and who are gonna love us enough to walk us through it. And so um, I just hope that Kanye has that and that's what I wanted to get at. Appreciate you asking. I, I would take it this way. I wish you had asked me a different way or just about, but, but, but what I would, the advice I would give to people, the, the one thing that I think I do uh, that I think other people could model in their own lives is, I mean, I really, really beg the people close to me to tell me the truth. Awesome. And, and uncomfortable truths. And even the, they'll, know that they're about to irritate me. And I'll know that they're about to irritate me. My mother could attest to this. Is like, <laughs> because me and my mother disagree about a lot of things, but the thing she'll hear from me constantly is like, don't tell me what I wanna hear. Tell me what you really think, even if I disagree with it, mama, go ahead. Mm -hmm. And that, I say that to, I say it to Uncle Jimmy, and me and Uncle Jimmy been friends for 25 some odd years or whatever, and, and we have some differences See, of opinion. This is so good. This, we all need this, what you're talking about. And this is what too many of us don't have today. We need relationships where we're helping each other to be who God wants us to be. You but mentioned, I, you mentioned about um, uh, speculation. I, that's, that's how I was raised about celebrities. Like, I don't know Kanye. I'm only getting what I can see. And so... I see him from, from my side, I see him as an artist, number one. Uh, he is successful 
And with that success comes fame. And I like what you brought up about fame. Fame is is tempting. Fame is it's, it's like a drug, but it's weird in that you have to take it, but you also have to feed it. You know, you have to keep doing things to keep you famous, but you like what fame gives you. So there's that struggle that many people who are successful, they struggle with that dynamic. If you're in that world, sometimes that fame can tell you uh, or, or you can try to gain your worth from that. Like, wait, people aren't calling my name. I ain't came up with nothing in six months. Like what's I got to do something. I got to, you know, get my name back out there. So sometimes there's that struggle. I don't know what Kanye, et cetera. But then sometimes I look at him from the optimist where I'm like, I'm really wanting this to work. Like when he came out yeah. with his first Sunday service, you know, kind of deal as a minister, you know, and I'm, I love music. We've talked about that. Like, wow, this is something. And it's a risk in that business in Hollywood. He knew he was going to take and he did pretty good with I mean, I think he did well with that. But then even in this, as you pointed out, this kind of prayer, which is a confessional, uh, slide it under your Isley Brother albums, slide it under all that music back then was begging to get her back. And, you know, many of those artists, that's literally how they wrote their song. Bobby Womack, all those guys, they wrote those songs trying to get somebody back, trying to woo somebody. Maybe this is a song for her and maybe this is really coming from maybe it is. And if it is. Kudos, Kanye. Like, I hope this is. I see the struggle if it's genuine. I think the point that Bobby's making about our Christian walk, we all have that struggle. Some of it is more public than others. There are some of my members that come every week. You wouldn't know the transformation that's taken in their life. You see them every week, but you don't know. And God really had to work through for him to say a couple of the things that he said in there. All I think about every day is how to get my family back. From a person who might struggle with fame, that sounds like some maturity there to say, man, I'm, I'm really just trying to whatever I got to do. Perhaps he says, I take accountability for my actions. Success and failure has in common me. Uh, he talks about how his coming to Jesus. He said I was arrogant with it. Like those are some bold statements to put out anyway. And you claim to be, you know, I'm trying to follow Christ and you put that out because those are daggers that those who oppose you could use again. Man, you, you know, this was all about this. So again, I'm hope if this is genuine and, and I know that's the criticism of most people. This is just another, you know, fame grab. This is and that I don't know him. It may be. But if it isn't. Okay, so I, I stand on the side, you know, Bobby is, is one of his biggest fran- fans, so I know that. <laughs> I, 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 like his, I, like his, I, like, I like some of his music. Um, I like his shoes and stuff, so I, I kind of I, I kinda go there, but I look at it from a side of, now what I've always prayed about, not just Kanye, but many of these celebrities that I see struggle that I kind of like, I've always hoped for an opportunity. Like, maybe it's me. Maybe I could say something to Kanye. Maybe I could tweet him. Maybe I could say, hey, man, I'm here. Here's somebody that has no direct connection to you. I'm not attracted to fame. I just want to help. Okay, now you've led me to my question. Yeah. Which is, what advice, as it relates to Kanye and Kim, Mm -hmm. the advice I would give him as a (laughs) non-minister would be like, hey, man, she was high on X and got married at 19. 
put out a sex tape. Mm-hmm. She married an NBA journeyman. Mm-hmm. Y'all just broke up. She's running around with a 28-year-old comedian from Saturday Night Live. She's got four kids. She's 41. Uh, you know, are, are you sure this is the right path to go down? Maybe y'all broke up. Maybe God took her out of your life for a reason because that is poison. And, and that's not me trying to denigrate her. It's just she may be so flawed and you're so flawed that y'all can't really help each other and y'all not. And, and so, but that's me as a non-minister. I'm wondering. I, I, mm-hmm. I just want to, here, here's the thing that we all want to advocate for the covenant of marriage. They, they have a covenant where they made a covenant with God and, and they're not divorced yet. And until they're divorced, I'm, I'm with, uh, I was going to call him Kanye, but I'm going to call him Ye, since that's his new name. <laughs> I, I'm with him for fighting for his marriage. Now, uh, how do you get uh, a situation like that back? Let me tell you something that uh, is not talked about enough. It's you fast and you pray, and you fast and you pray, and you ask God to intervene. I think your analysis of Kim is correct from like what I can tell, which, you know, who am I to know? But uh, I have been through this personally with my parents. Uh, I've seen God literally change lives, but it requires uh, us to just really surrender it all to him, fast and pray that she would change her mind as well as him doing all that he can to say, look, I wanna, I wanna work this out. I'll own my part uh, p- with the hope, please, that she would own hers. The same God that can powerfully transform Kanye's life could change Kim Kardashian's life. Like the same power. If, if, if they were a couple that I were counseling, you know, I'm gonna get to the root of what's the issue. Was God the center of your life or was fame the center of your life? Were you married in an instance of, uh, as you kind of pointed out, was this a business decision? Hey, you got an up and coming brand. I got an up and coming brand. Uh, You look cute, I'm cute, let's be cute together. Like, was that the idea or was God at the center of this? Kanye, if you're searching after God, now that's, you know, I've had to deal with couples that have divorced or gone through that process. I I don't want, even though I I hear this maturity in, all I think about is trying to get my family back. I got it, but I'm going to put one above that, which is I need to be in a right relationship with God. That's primary. And if we get that together, then we can get to the rest of these things on the list. Same I would say to her if, if they were if I had them together, I would rather you because, you know, as Bobby pointed out, we fight for marriage like we do. And as as crazy as it may seem, I think about, you know, just look at how people might look at us from a different vantage point. You know, Mary uh, and, and Joseph, Jesus's parents, and they had some drama before Jesus came along. They weren't solidly married yet. They were still kind of engaged. She gets pregnant, not by Joseph. Like that was around the town. Like what kind of drama? Y'all probably don't need to be. No, God does some things. So God may have something here. God, as you pointed out, could be, hey, it's time for you guys to move on. Or it could be, hey, we need to get this thing right. But I'm trying to get God in the center of all of it. And when you put him in the middle, as he tells us, all these things will be added unto us. I'm going to 
in this discussion by telling something that will be somewhat interpreted as me making a joke about myself. Hey, can, can I interject? <laughs> Go ahead, I quickly. I want to add one thing. Yep. Um, one of the things that you and I value, that we value on Tennessee Harmony, is transparency. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I'm a big Kanye advocate is because he's transparent about his sins. Just like you're transparent, I'm trying to be transparent. I think the first thing we all have to recognize is when you say you, you're going to follow Jesus, it's because there's stuff in our lives and none of us has it all right. And Amen. I, I just wanted to, to get that out there, that we all share that in common. And that's why I really care about Kanye and this whole conversation. He's trying to be transparent, even though he messes up. And so maybe Kanye is attempting to do this, uh, but he's got to, I agree with Anthony, he's got to get right with God before he'll be able to get right with Kim or <laughs> anybody else in his life. And, and I say this not to crack a joke, not to embarrass myself, but I, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about uh, my own journey and just how foolish we can be as men. And I tell this story amongst my friends, uh, my very best friends, a guy named Frank Barnes. Uh, we played college football together. <clears throat> and when I was in Kansas City, God sent a couple of women that were great candidates for marriage. Awesome candidates. But I was so blinded and so detached from God, I couldn't even remotely recognize them. And I joke with my best friend about this. This probably happened when I was 28, 29 years old. Uh, and it's so vivid in my mind that, because me and this woman were friends and, and, and great woman. She comes out, I'm, I'm at a Derek Thomas celebrity golf event. My best friend comes in from Chicago to participate. We're socializing, partying with Derek Thomas and all these other celebrities. Golf term, this woman's all into me. She gets all dressed up, comes out to that golf event. And I'll never forget, and I'm not saying this, Frank, to embarrass you if you're watching or someone sends it to you. But I remember my boy Frank was like, because I was dating this other girl at the time. And he was like, that girl ain't got no booty. You're going to walk away from, I'm not going to call the other woman's name, for that? And my dumb, <laughs> hey, yeah, you're right. And it's one of the dumbest decisions mm. I've ever made in my life. When, I'm, when I, I could walk you through who this woman was and what she's doing now and you could tell she was headed this direction then. And, and literally, I, me and my friend came to the conclusion her booty wasn't big enough, and this other girl's was. And I kept down that direction. Mm. And that's how stupid we can be as men. And that's when I look at Kanye and his Thanksgiving prayer, I'm like, this sounds like some stuff I was doing when I was 28, 20, but I go, you know, Kanye got four kids, but I'm just like, he's 40. He's got to get right with God yes. so that he could actually see who he's dealing with. I, I couldn't. And it's 
one of my biggest uh, regrets in life. I could, go, I could give a couple other stories <laughs> quite similar. Uh, and so that's why I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee. There you go. Uh, <laughs> with a whole different mentality. Hey, uh, on Sunday, uh, we're doing something together yeah. at, at your church. Yes. Bob, uh, with, through Renew.org, uh, yeah. what are we doing? Uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> agreeing. And what we're doing, we're calling it, a, uh, it's another fearless conversation on Christ and culture. And uh, it's an opportunity if you live in the Nashville area, I think on the screen, uh, you'll see where you can register, renew.org forward slash events. And uh, it'll be me and Anthony and Jason. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, really, it's an extension of Tennessee Harmony. It's what's happening in our culture, what does the Bible say about it, and how can you be a part of that solution through churches that are all working together on the same stuff. Looking forward to it. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, a great show today. J.D. Vance was awesome. Loved our discussion about uh, Twitter's new CEO. Uh, I think I hear tomorrow. That's it and that's all. We'll see you tomorrow. Waiting for the countdown, coming off the breakdown, standing in line for freedom. Looking for a breakout, feeling like a standoff, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation We all just wanna have freedom Sitting on the corner, never been alone I'm breaking my back for freedom Bless, we are living, get back We are receiving all the seeds When we all wanna be free We want freedom I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want, I wanna be I just want